Hey, welcome to Return to Reason. My name is David Craig. In her previous work as an intelligence analyst, my guest today focused on various aspects of Russian and Soviet politics, including communist media and propaganda. With a BA in journalism and international relations and a master's in history from University of Southern California, Stella Morabito is expertly qualified to speak to a phenomena most of the Western world experienced during the handling of a COVID pandemic. I can't wait to ask her about her book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Well, Stella, thank you so much for being with us today on Return to Reason. We're going to talk about a topic that has um, arguably been on everyone's minds for the last three years, whether they know it or not. And you just recently wrote a book that's called The Weaponization of Loneliness. First of all, How are you doing today? And tell me maybe why you wrote this book. Well, first of all, thank you so much, David, for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, So I I wrote the book because I felt that people did not have a conscious enough understanding of how these kind of psychological manipulations that we've been dealing with, and not just for the past three years, by the way, but for a long time, but it, it really exploded on the scene with COVID, as you know. Um, and, and and the effect that isolation has on us and, and has on us socially, I mean, on all of society, uh, and it's not just isolation, it's the fear of isolation, the fear of ostracism that causes us to comply and conform with so many bad agendas. And we really do need to learn more about it. And, um, you know, honestly, we need to snap out of it if we if we're going to preserve freedom. Well, I think a lot of people can relate with the idea of loneliness. A lot of people felt isolated over the last number of years. I know there's a lot of times I've got friends and family, different events that they had where they weren't allowed to go because of things they believed or stood for or families were divided. How is loneliness used as a tactic, maybe through history and even in the past number of years, um, to enforce a sense of tyranny? or maybe it even exposes tyrannical leaders? Well, uh, yes, this is a recurring pattern uh, throughout history, especially modern history. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody needs to first of all understand that isolation is the number one weapon that's used by any tyrant, Uh, whether it's just a one-on-one gaslighting relationship in a dysfunctional relationship, you know, how the gaslighter always tries to separate the other partner from social interactions, or whether it's on the playground or in, you know, a toxic work environment with a toxic boss that marginalizes someone, gets them fearful of losing their job or, yeah. or, or all the way up to um, a very dangerous cult leader, like for example, Jim Jones, who isolated all of his recruits in the jungle. Yeah. Uh, in 1978, there was that massacre, suicide, mass suicide of a thousand people just followed his orders. And then of course, all the way up to world-class dictators. Uh, and you can look at what they they call North Korea, the hermit kingdom, because um, they are so isolated. They are so they are not exposed to any other narrative other than the propaganda that they hear day in and day out. Yep. So it, this is a, the number one weapon of tyranny. In fact, if your listeners are familiar with Hannah Arendt's epic book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, mm-hmm. she doesn't go into it in depth, but she does note that uh, terror doesn't really have a grip on people 
unless they're isolated against one another. Yeah. And therefore, the main concern of all tyrannical governments is to bring that isolation about. And so what we saw in COVID is kind of like the masks of all of these kind of tyrannical forces coming off and enforcing our isolation and mm. not just our isolation uh, in terms of house arrest and, and you know, all of these yep. mandates and covering up your face all the time and all of that, but actually instilling hostilities where hostilities had not existed before. This is a, also a common pattern that you'll find in, in uh, Soviet Russia and Mao's China's cultural revolution. Yep. It, it, it's, it's, it's a common pattern to get family members to become disloyal to one another or actually start pointing fingers at one another. And we saw that come out uh, enormously during COVID. Well, you know, that families. was an interesting point is that there's even this labeling that would go on that you would find that out of people, we'd end up labeling people whether they chose to be vaccinated or not, which is you would think it'd be their own right to choose what they do and put into their body or how people spoke or the fact that if people weren't wearing masks and people are trying to force them to, you notice this group think idea where you almost come in this bullying tactics to make someone else conform to how maybe the general population might be conforming, which was really interesting to see that come out of normal people that you thought might have been your friends it's amazing how groupthink can make those those type of things come come forth oh absolutely and that's what propaganda is all about is to kind of develop that sort of groupthink it's it's yeah. actually there are different levels of propaganda but ultimately it's really what i call coercive thought reform it's yeah. a form of coercive thought reform and um and so you brought up an excellent point about the, the what I would call the smear words, like yeah. anti-vaxxer, for example. Totally. That you will find throughout modern history, but especially in the, you know, I say the United States, North America, in the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, the decades where political correctness has really gotten a hold, that demonization and demonization campaigns are absolutely central to getting people to shut up about what they believe. Uh, Anti-vaxxer is just one of, I mean, you could probably think of a hundred different terms that we've got for all different agendas that they're trying to push through. Bigot, hater, now white yeah. supremacist, conspiracy theorist is another one, a big one. Uh, yeah. You know, you got the different quote phobias, you know, oh, you're you know, transphobic. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Now we've got election denier, you know, there's a whole series yeah. of deniers. Yeah. It, it's 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 all smear words meant to trigger that fear of being ostracized. And, and it's been very powerful. But when we wake up to it, and I think people actually are, there are some hopeful signs out there that these things are losing their sting. It's almost... Um, a dehumanization attempt as well. Yeah. So during COVID, two and a half years, and now we're on, on the fallout of it for the last year or so, is did COVID just expose leaders that might have tyrannical impulses at heart? Or was this a planned thing by uh, a group of people? Because I know there's common, uh, some a lot of people have the thought of, there is this common conception that there is this big, grandiose plan that's executed by a they in a back room. In your opinion, did this just expose tyrannical um, people and at their root? 
Well, I think it, to a great extent it did. And, uh, you know, when you look at the history of what we call utopian radical revolutions, yeah. there's always a grand plan. I mean, and, and it's not a secret. I mean, you don't have to be a, quote, conspiracy theorist to sure. see it. They come right out, like, for example, the Great Reset. They just come right out and say what they think, yeah. you know, <laughs> we ought to do, what we ought to eat, where we, you know, what we're, we should be allowed to say. And, I mean, they just come right out and say, hey, we're going to rule over you. I mean, there's no secret there. Although when you call them on it, they try to pretend that they, well, they never said that, but it's all out there. I mean, it's, they've published this stuff and, they, you know, the World Economic Forum just got together in Davos. They had a big panel. What was it on, uh, quote, disinformation the clear yeah. and present danger i mean it, it's it's all out there and and um there is this impulse in certain sections certain core of human beings uh that have this sort of totalitarian impulse uh and it's there i mean you can't deny it you see it happening over and over and over again and the free world or looking at the united states and our constitution is particularly our first amendment is really kind of miraculous because um, this other impulse, this totalitarian impulse is just so hardwired into so many uh, dictators throughout the course of history that it's it's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, it, it seems like that totalitarian strain is more of the default position. Yep of humanity interesting and uh so it's no quote conspiracy theory i mean it's default yeah. and that is why there is such a concerted effort in so many ways to to undermine the first amendment of the u.s constitution or free speech in general because when we can speak freely to one another th they don't really stand a chance when we feel um, open and able to speak freely. We exchange ideas. We are able to get at the truth. And yeah, you know, all kinds of other ideas come creep in there. But the the antidote to that is more free speech, not less. Um, and and censorship is really where you get disinformation. That's how you get disinformation. So propaganda seems to be central in terms of continuing continuing to weaponize loneliness. If you don't mind, could you also just define what propaganda is for our audience? And also, secondly, how can we be aware of what propaganda we should be watching out for? Because obviously you have you have WEF in their most recent one. They're talking about disinformation, which is a form of propaganda. And now you've got misinformation and disinformation working against each other just coming from each party. So what is propaganda and how can we, we be aware of it? Okay, well, if I had to define it, and I'm sure there's plenty of different de definitions out there, but I would call it a conditioning process hmm. uh, through the mass media, that, particularly a media monopoly, and you know that that you get with big tech and all the institutions that fall under, uh, you know, that that whole monopoly. Um, it, it, it it's a conditioning process by which a narrative is pushed forward uh, to, uh, you know, kind of drown out any other narrative. Yeah. And, 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 and it uses psychological manipulation to, um, you know, to, to bring those agendas uh, to fruition. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't exist on its own. Uh, it, it exists along with agitation. And that's where you get into mobs and the mob mindset and everything to kind of enforce the propaganda 
That's a good definition. So with your, your book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, what would, if you could summarize, what would be the main goal of you writing this book? What point are you trying to get across to your readers? I guess, ultimately, I'd like people to understand that, first of all, whenever we self-censor, we're doing all the heavy lifting for tyrants. We're, we're giving oxygen to all of those bad agendas. We're actually affecting public opinion when we self-censor. We're actually helping them to regulate public opinion. Now, everybody has a different threshold for what they can do in terms of expressing what they believe. I understand that. But I want people to understand that when you think you're getting relief by complying with the propaganda, all you're doing is supporting the propaganda and digging society in deeper to a state of unfreedom, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's number one. That's one of the things I want people to understand is that self-censorship is extremely destructive to freedom. Uh, you may know 100 people who think exactly the way you do, but they don't feel they're allowed to express it. And yeah. so you never know who those yeah. people are. And that's exactly what totalitarians want. They, they want to uh, shut down the marketplace of ideas. They want to shut down uh, you know, our ability to communicate. Is there any form of censorship that is good, though? Because... Obviously, there are some forms of censorship we have. There's a, it's, it's becoming yeah. really vague and really broad lines now are painted in terms of what's censored or not. Right. Where, where is right. that line? Well, I'm talking about political censorship. Yes. I, I'm not talking about pornography. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, where uh, we want to protect children uh, who don't really, you know, who aren't capable of understanding a lot of things uh, until they become... You know, their prefrontal cortex has developed with it. Um, so I'm, I'm not talking about uh, that kind of stuff. I'm talking about political censorship, the exchange, general exchange in public discourse of ideas, uh, the ability at a university of all places to investigate what's true and what isn't, uh, you know, in terms of philosophy, or now it's even in the hard sciences. I mean, it's gotten so crazy. And the reason it's gotten so crazy is through our compliance with self-censorship, which all boils down to that fear of being ostracized. But you, again, you're not, you may feel a little relief from being ostracized when you comply and conform. But ultimately, as more and more people uh, conform uh you lose all of your freedoms in society so we've got to we've got to become aware of how this process works how these patterns have repeated themselves throughout history and there is even a science to it that uh, doesn't seem to be investigated as much as it was after world war ii uh for example with solomon ash's conformity experiments which are fascinating um one of the things she found was that if that illusion of unanimity is punctured by just one voice, like if there's another person out there who agrees with you and you manage to overcome your fear and express something, that drops conformity of the group quite a bit, a wow. huge amount. Yeah, uh, and so point. this is something we need to understand. And I think the left has used that. Um, like if you go to a town hall meeting, they get their shills in sure. different places in the meeting and in order to embolden this illusion of an agenda that's not really uh, has minority majority support. 
Well, a great example of that is I'm sure you're aware of what happened in Canada one year ago, actually, right now, we were in the middle of it in terms of the convoy of uh, mass trucks heading to Ottawa. That event transformed Canada, whether our government or legacy medias want to uh, attest to it or not, in regards to seeing people realize I'm not alone in how I think. There exactly. are so many other people in this country that feel they're, they might not know how to articulate it, but they know this is not right in my gut. This doesn't make sense. I'm being forced to do things I don't believe in. It's my body. I can do what I want with it, that type of thing. And the mass amount of people, not only that, that just converged on Ottawa, which was an, an is honestly incredible to be, be a part of and just see that camaraderie that came forth. But at the same time, knowing that there are people and voices all across Canada being represented. That's a great example of what you're just talking about. If you can talk and avoid that self-censorship and start communicating what you think, you'll realize there are more people that think like oh, yeah. what you do. So I'm not, did, were you able to follow that story much of the convoy in Canada? Oh. Oh, yeah, I did. I mean, I found it really chilling. I mean, you know, people couldn't even get a cup of coffee uh, down the street. They weren't allowed because they were part of the, you know, the convoy or or yeah. uh, they uh, you know, had bank accounts frozen. I yeah. mean, uh, th this is like beyond the pale. And, and, yeah. and I think that it probably opened a lot of eyes to what was going on. I mean, you know, some people, they're they're far gone. But Sure. Uh, I think most people understand that. Unfortunately, they they aren't, uh, you know, necessarily in the seats of power. But um, you're absolutely right. One of my favorite books that I cite uh, in 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 my book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Uh, it's actually a long essay by Václav Havel uh, called "The Power of the Powerless," and uh, it was uh, published in 1978 in the underground press in the Soviet bloc country of Czechoslovakia. Pavel later became president. He had been yeah. uh, the Czech Republic. He had been a dissident, but he wrote this uh, this incredible essay uh, that was like a shot in the arm to a lot of the other dissidents. Um, and one of his points, the power of the powerless lies all in the hidden sphere of life. Hmm. When you think about it, our personal relationships, our one-on-one -on -one relationships is really the big prize of tyrants. That's what they're going after. They yeah. capture all the other institutions, but they still want to control, you know, what you think, what you say, and with whom you associate. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the points he brings up in the, in the, in the essay is that even if nobody says anything, when you speak the truth, you will have illumined it. And and they and people generally cannot unhear it or unsee it. And it has an effect that these totalitarians can't really control, but it becomes part of um it becomes part of uh it changes. It causes yeah. a ripple effect. It causes a ripple effect in thinking and behavior, but you have to keep that alive wow. uh you know you can't just uh stop talking at some point this i think is uh part of the problem that we face today is when we did just kind of assume in america that our first amendment rights were sacrosanct and nobody's really going to go after them you know because it's right there in the constitution yeah. well no i mean they're going after they had this misinformation or whatever they call it, disinformation governance board it, it you know it, it it kind of disappeared, but it, it'll be back yeah. uh, where they want to do top-down censorship. And, and of course, the whole COVID thing uh, that we went through, 
we can't assume that, you know, they aren't going to come back. They, you know, I mean, the power elites in the corporate world, you know, who I'm talking about, WEF and so on. Uh, they're they're going to, they've got other things going on. I mean, they, they're never going to give up. They've got like a superhuman stamina when it comes to power mongering, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. they, you know, it's like, it's almost like a person in the grip of a psychotic episode. They yeah. don't sleep, they don't eat, wow. they just are going for, and, and this is kind of the behavior. They are never going to give up on that. So that's why the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Yeah, as, that's good you know, as the adage says, we don't just, you know, think it'll all go away once we've got it written in our constitution. We have to keep being aware. We have to keep talking and, and keep up and expand those um, those good, healthy, personal relationships where you can talk to other people. And because and you have to expand and, and do more outreach because there is so much brokenness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, family brokenness over the decades. Yeah. Well, if we can capture, if we can capture that type of drive that you alluded to as a superhuman sense in terms of keeping up our freedoms and our conversations and not being ashamed to talk about, if you think of how our countries were built, that is the basis of democracy is being, is having open conversations, letting the best ideas stand, let each idea sharpen each other and, and, and fight against each other and see which one comes out on top. And, and it's a really good point is that I hope if people are watching, they just, or as they're watching, they just get the point of be don't be afraid to talk about what you think even don't be afraid of of group think or what people might ostracize you because your opinion these conversations as you alluded to over the dining room table over the dinner table across our nations are so vital because they do shape where our country's going and you talked about an attack on relationships and there's been a clear i'll say an all-out assault um on the nuclear family on, oh, yeah. on on the family that that's that's clear for years and years and years as part of a, a greater tactic in my opinion uh, of, of what the, what is trying to be accomplished maybe talk about a little bit what that has happened how propaganda has been destroying the family because at the same time as you see families break down in a sense you can see our nations start to i hope they don't fully crumble but they start to get cracks in terms of what our nation's built on Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't have strong communities without strong families, yeah. not really, really strong, organic. I'm not talking about the kind of community that sure. they talk about at Davos. I'm, I'm talking about real communities where people care about one another, where you, where you saw in Ottawa last year. Yeah. I mean, you know, this sense of camaraderie that develops um, yeah. and, and that has to be nurtured. Uh, we have to, you know, and, and you're right. Uh, about the brokenness and how this has happened uh, through so many different agenda items that seem almost tailor-made to break down the family. I mean, United States, we had the, like the no-fault divorce, the whole sexual revolution thing that, you know, all of that is uh, is part and parcel of, uh, you know, family breakdown. And of course, people, it brings on a lure, you know, the lure of sexual pleasure, all that stuff plays into it. And of course, Hollywood and and all these, you know, the art institutions and the arts and everything kind of promote that so that you become like a nerd or, you know, you, you know, some other name uh, to, to kind of discredit you uh, from society if you're not on board with it. Yeah. And we see this in universities and everything. So there's been not just cracks. I mean, you know, huge crumbling. However, however, 
there are uh, still very strong families in place. Yep. And uh, a lot of people who are having children uh, don't really don't subscribe to all this other stuff. It's almost like they're the, these totalitarians are in a race against uh, what might happen if you know if if strong families um, you know take <laughs> take over yeah, yeah. you know as it I were you if if they become yep. uh, more of a strong you know stronger force in society yeah and uh, and that's why it's so important to them to invade the institution of education especially yeah. k-12 and preschool now with all this confusing queer theory gender ideology the trans stuff and all that yeah. it's all it's all meant not just to divide us from one another but even for a small child to to divide them within themselves so that they don't even have this sense of identity uh yeah. as being male or female and so on and so forth so all of this stuff is of a piece. It's all kind of tied together um, with the brokenness that totalitarians need in order to maintain social control and to well, capture. I love what you said about strong families because it really is a foundation and bedrock of also what we're built on. You look at the strong families through history and how influential they've been. And well, you've got very unique experience, especially when it comes to propaganda. You worked with the CIA during the Cold War and, and an expert in that area, especially with the Soviet Union at the height and then also at the, at the fall is, could you first off tell us how did you get involved? I'm curious, how did you get involved with the CIA? And then maybe tell us a little bit about what your work was at the height of it. Well, I, you know, I've always had a fascination with psychological operations. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's always, I mean, it's kind of when you get right down to it, all wars are either won or lost a lot of times just based on, you know, demoralization or some kind of psyop. So I, you know, I, I work in a couple different offices there doing analysis, uh, but one of the offices in particular uh, had to do with media analysis and looking at how, uh, you know, all the different uh, ways that maybe the U.S. was portrayed or who was meeting with whom. There was some Kremlinology involved, you know, who was yep. up, who was down. But, uh, one of the things I noticed, you know, you read Pravda and all these other, uh, you know, rags that communists put out, you know, it's their only source of, you know, information, their narratives. And one of the narratives they pushed was that the United States, uh, you know, created AIDS in order to, you know, uh, you know, attack black Americans. So it, it it's, it, it just was such, um, you know, it wasn't just an eye opener. I mean, this is, typical this is sort of the pattern that you get in any kind of one party state yeah and uh, sadly in our education system i'm not you know 100 I, I don't know a lot about canada but in the u.s history is just kind of gone as uh except in really really good schools mm -hmm. uh you know as a uh, as a subject i mean you've got all these uh, little fads that they follow and you don't study civics anymore the constitution and, and even any kind of content knowledge. So ignorance itself has become very isolating. That's a good um, point, yeah. Youth just don't have a, a, a handle on it. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting kind of off topic there. So uh, yes, I was, I was there for about a decade yeah. uh, uh, following Soviet media and propaganda and, and disinformation. I mean, you know, they, they, the, the folks who keep focusing, calling their opponents the source of disinformation tend to be the ones 
who are most responsible for disinformation. That's a projection. Is totally, a it's a projection, it. pointing the finger at someone else for what you're actually doing yourself. Right, that happens exactly. quite often. Well, it's very unique expertise you have, and that's why I think this book that you wrote is fascinating and a, and a must-read. Uh, everyone who's watching, you should pick up the book. It's a great book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Stella, I really wish we had more time. I think I'm going to have to start a three-hour podcast so we can just kind of go on and on about this. But quickly, before we wrap up, would you let people know how they can follow you, connect with you if they want to know what you're up to and what you're writing? How can they best follow you? Thank you very much, David. I do have a personal blog, stellamorabito.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Stella underscore Morabito. That's mm -hmm. my handle. Uh, and the book, you can find anywhere books are sold online, particularly Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Goodreads. It's widely available and I hope you pick up a copy. That's awesome. Well, the weaponization of loneliness must read. You got to know what's going on in terms of when it comes to tyrannical leaders and how they try to split people up. I'm looking forward to reading that again. Stella, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you very much, David. It was great talking to you. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. It's Return to Reason.